Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, February 22nd, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm going to pose to you a question that the New Republic posed to me in a headline. Why was... A New Orleans magician behind that anti-Biden New Hampshire robocall. This is not possible to answer. No one can answer it. In fact, it begs the question. Let's cut off a couple of those words and just report to you the very important fact as first unearthed by MSNBC, a magician was behind the robocall. The Democratic consultant who worked for a rival presidential campaign paid a New Orleans magician to use artificial intelligence to impersonate President Joe Biden for a robocall. I don't understand why he couldn't have just done an impression of Joe Biden or had the little hand in the box and wiggled his fingers when it was really a puppet as his assistant walked around the bend and did an impression of Joe Biden. Paul Carpenter, the New Orleans magician, was hired by Steve Kramer, who's worked on ballot access for Dean Phillips. Oh my God, we're getting way into the weeds. Doug Henning is going to come up soon. But it wasn't through the spirit of illusion that these robocalls were made. Somehow AI was used. I don't know why you'd have to go through a magician to get a robocall that sounded like Joe Biden and didn't work and also didn't sound that much like Joe Biden. Some details about this magician, Carpenter, who holds world records in fork bending and straitjacket escapes, but has no fixed address. See, that's what you want from a magician. Anyone could have a fixed address. You, I, totally non-magical people have fixed addresses, but can we bend forks? We cannot. Can Carpenter? Probably not. The world records weren't even from the Guinness Book of World Records. They were from something called Record Holders Republic, the Registry of Official World Records. Fork bending. Paul Carpenter has bent 10 forks, six bends each, the fastest in 52.62 seconds. Straight jacket, escape, male, fastest, 10.94 seconds. Coney Island, 2007. Doesn't a lot of the quickness depend on the construction of the straight jacket, how closely 
it was tied. These are all important questions, much more than why was a New Orleans magician behind that anti-Biden New Hampshire robocall? Why wouldn't he be? He is a magician. He is skilled in the dark arts. He has been bequeathed by Satan powers that we cannot understand. Of course, you're going to use them to imitate Joe Biden married with AI in a robocall that influences nobody. But don't let me have the last word. Here now, magician, record holder, non-permanent address, assignee, Paul Carpenter. Oh, uh, as you listen, you might hear the burbling in the background. He is standing naked, but for a fig leaf covering his genitals in a burbling brook. And in the video of this clip, he previously appeared wearing a swastika on his forehead and in blackface, um, claiming to be black and Jewish, uh, the blackface one was preceded by a quote from Malcolm X. Let's hear Paul Carpenter's message. My name is not Paul Carpenter. I am not an American. I am not African-American. I am not a white supremacist. I am not Jewish. I am not Hispanic. I stand here today as a human being. And that, as far as we concern, is the authentic Paul Carpenter, the record-holding Paul Carpenter, and was not generated by AI. On the show today in the spiel, it is an anniversary, a five-year anniversary of the Green New Deal, and we examine if the GND was a BFD for AOC. But first, S. Leo Chang is the director of the Oscar-nominated short documentary, Island in Between, which tells the story of his life being born in Taiwan, and being raised in the United States. The link to the film is in the show notes, and you can watch for free as Leo Chang up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have to admit, I did not know of Kinman Island before I watched the new documentary short, Island In Between. The filmmaker, Leo Chang, has a familial connection to it. He's also Taiwanese. And Taiwan, as we know, is right across the Taiwan Strait from mainland China. But Kinmen Island, a part of Taiwan, is so much closer than that. It is, well, within just a, a couple of miles. And this has led to geopolitical and military conflict over the years. To be a resident or just to visit Kinmen Island is really to have some of the world's superpower conflicts thrust upon you. And Leo Chang contemplates this in the new Oscar-nominated short film of the title Island in Between. Leo, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Tell me about the familial connection beyond you just being Taiwanese, the familial connection to Kinmen Island. Yeah, my, my father actually served uh, his uh, mandatory military service on the Kinmen Islands in 1968. Uh, that was during the time there was still active bombing between Taiwan and China. And he was there for, I think, eight months. And do they do young uh, Taiwanese boys still serve? Yeah, yeah. So so during his times, he had to serve two years in total. Uh, most recently, uh, I think young men after high school, they have a choice of either going to college or doing their military service first, or they can also do their service after college. But right now it's about four months. But this last year, the government just re-upped that from four months to a year. So that's, you know, to me, that's an indication of how the, the perception is of the situation across the Taiwan Strait. Yeah. Now, in different countries, they take mandatory military service differently. I know many South Korean young men uh, just try to slough it off, get out of it. Maybe they work as a uh, policeman directing traffic to satisfy that requirement. But in Taiwan, given that there is a looming threat, is this taken much more seriously? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. The joke was always that, you know, uh, in the last 20 years or so, uh, the the men the young men are brought into military to polish the tanks and and you know and like you know wash the guns and stuff like that. Um, but lately, there there is this slight panic um, that that I could hear from some of the politicians that the Taiwanese military is simply not ready if anything does happen. No one is convinced that anything will necessarily happen, but you know, just in case, uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, people in general just need to be more prepared. Right. And you quote people, residents of the island who are saying, oh, the Chinese will never invade. But, well, I'm not sure that the uh, military leaders and the uh, civilian leaders think that. And also, it must be generational, right? Your father's generation must keep that possibility more in mind than maybe your generation where act of war and conflicts over the Taiwan Straits are just things in history books. 
Well, you know, I, I, you would think that, but I actually feel like the the attitude shift or the attitude divide is not quite as simple as generational. Definitely plays in uh, plays into it, but um, I think it has to do with uh, you know what your family background. I mean, there there's families in Taiwan that are first generation Taiwanese, meaning that their parents came from the mainland with Chiang Kai-shek with the nationalists after the, the Chinese Civil War. And then there are also families like ours, like my family, who are also ethnic Taiwanese, I'm sorry, ethnic Chinese, but have been in Taiwan for eight or nine generations. Um, so I think if you ask the a lot of the, the, the folks who have been there for a long time, I mean, this is just, facts of life, yeah. you know, like yeah. it, it was just con con under constant threat. Feels like, you know, it's not any more likely to happen now than than 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. But if you ask people who have closer relationships with China, they might feel like, well, you know, people are telling me that, that, that this one feels different. You know, it feels like it's inevitable. It feels like it's kind of coming, coming right up. So, so, so who knows? We don't know. So the, so the generally speaking, the folks who uh, fled with Chiang Kai-shek during the uh, communist revolution, they're somewhat akin to the uh, Cubans who fled Castro. They're a little more militant. They're a little more cognizant of the threat. Are they a little more, maybe not just aware of the threat, but eager to fight? Ironically, the, the, the people that came with Chiang Kai-shek are now the ones who want closer relationships to China. I, I think this is the reason why Taiwan is in some ways is so incomprehensible for the international community. This is why we need documentary like yours, because I'm trying to map <laughs> it onto what I know. And right. I picked a, um, a, a yeah. belligerent country miles from our shores and I picked wrong. But go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 but, 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 but you're absolutely right, though, in terms of the, the, the dynamics, right? I, I think the tricky bit here is that initially those were the people that were more militant and wanted to fight. And they were the one that gave us those propaganda songs where, you know, we're, we're supposed to go back and, you know, kill the communists and take back China. But these are also people who think that they are Chinese. They don't consider themselves Taiwanese. So now, you know, the, 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 the hope or the, this, this delusion of being able to take back China is gone. They want now to find a way to become Chinese again, or, or they want to maintain that relationship. So f if anything, in general, that th those folks are more leaning towards reunification and closer relationships with China. It's the people that um, that are really sort of, you know, fiercely Taiwanese. They feel like, yes, ethnically we're the same background, but we're a different country. We have different identities. We have actually different set of history. And you cannot waltz in and say, well, you know, because 200 years ago, you used to be part of our territory. Now you're still ours. And those are the folks who are more, you know, resistant and more more vocal about not wanting to have anything to do with China. Does that does that more make sense? I mean, it does have parallel to both Korea and Cuba, you know, yeah. which. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, diaspora communities and um, uh, oppressed, fleeing oppressive dictators and vowing revenge and and, and <laughs> international boundaries thrust upon you. All of all of those obtain in all the analogies. But you talked about the cultural component, and in the movie, there was a very wonderful line about talking about how you felt like you were the child engaged in a three-way custody dispute. Um, is that 
how many people are in that? Well, you could explain who the three parents are, but how many <laughs> are like you, or is there something unique about your particular circumstance? Well, I, I think the the feeling of powerlessness, of, of not being able to decide our own future, the lack of power of self determination is real. Doesn't matter, you know what what sort of what part of Taiwan, what what sort of Taiwanese identity. That, that one happens to have in Taiwan. I think my situation is a little bit unusual, um, but not unique, uh, being that because I did spend most of my adult life in the U.S., even though I did was born and raised in Taiwan and was there until I was a 15-year-old. Um, there are other people like me, but it's in the minority. But I think um, we probably understand the American side a little bit better than the people who were born and raised and spend their whole t- whole life in Taiwan. You know what the American role is in the situation. Those who are in Taiwan um, definitely understand you know their situation in the context of Taiwan, China, and maybe a little bit uh, with the U.S. as well. Um, I mean, I would say growing up in Taiwan is really interesting. I think at every moment I knew exactly what was going on in the U.S. Even before I moved to the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, I knew who the president was. I knew every single major policy that was, you know, that was done because the Taiwanese people just felt like everything the U.S. did was super influential in the outcome of Taiwanese lives, and certainly with China, right? As you can imagine. So, so therefore, I, I think that this analogy of, of being uh, under custody battle. Um, you know, I, I feel like that applies to all the Taiwanese that I know. Yes. And oftentimes kids involved in a custody battle are, they have a, a wisdom or a maturity thrust upon them. They have to learn to read the signals of the parents. And it seems to me that to be effective uh, politically or operating in the world, the Taiwanese need those skills too. Uh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the, the, the fact that, that, you know, Taiwan really has no legal diplomatic standing, you know, in 99% of the world, right? I'm in New York this week, and I'm actually doing a a screening at the Taiwan Economic and Cultural Office this afternoon. Well, that's the Taiwanese embassy. I mean, you call it whatever you want, you know, the, 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 the head of that office is supposed to be the Taiwanese uh, ambassador, but no one addresses the person that way, you know? Um, It's uh, it, 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 it's Taiwanese have to kind of learn how to navigate this really strange performance <laughs> that somehow we've been cast in, you know, in our relationship with, with, with China, you know, the, the fact that I have to use this booklet in order to get in and out because my passport is not being seen as legal. And then the, the way that we interact with the U.S., you know, which is clear, like it says, clearly a diplomatic partnership, but no one can be addressed as a country or no Taiwanese, you know, can be addressed as an ambassador or, or official diplomat. You know, it, it's a it's a very strange situation that I'm actually trying to think if there are other parallels like this in the world. Maybe, I mean, maybe, um, maybe the Palestinians. I mean, I don't know, right? I, I'm I'm not thought this through completely, but I've always been curious about that. Well, the Palestinians have observer status at all these international organizations. And of course, the Taiwanese were kicked out of the UN. Um, China has that veto power. Not just the UN, the World Everything. Trade Organization, yeah. the World Health Organization. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that Taiwan was probably one of the most successful uh, uh, country in the world that, tacked, you know, that, that, that fought the, the COVID pandemic 
no zero zero uh, input from Taiwan in zero contribution or we're not allowed to share our information with the World Health Organization at all because Taiwan is seen as uh, persona non grata, you know, international. Well, I don't want to get conspiratorial, but maybe the World Health Organization not giving you inputs help Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> muscle through the pandemic. Is that why you went there, by the way? I know you did go there and live with your parents during the pandemic. Was it to be close to them or out of the suspicion that they might handle it better than public <laughs> health authorities in the United States? Well, the, the irony was that when we were leaving, I, I, I actually moved there technically in 2017, but but I was still you know spending a huge part of my time in the U.S. where yeah, most of the work is. But when it, when I was finishing up a pro, finishing up a project in in January of 2020, and I was going back to Taiwan, and all my friends were like, "Don't go! It's really dangerous there. You're too close to China." And 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 as I <laughs> arrived in Taiwan, I realized I had landed in probably the safest place in the world. I, mean, I don't think people ever realize that, but Taiwan has never had a COVID lockdown, period. We were never, ever, ever for one day had a full lockdown. You know, the restaurants yep. are open, markets were open. I was going to see movies and live shows during the pandemic. Anyway, I don't want to rub it in, but, you know, I'm, I'm, in, no, I'm not, obviously I mean, in many I... ways I'm proud <laughs> of it, right? I mean, I want to share yeah, that. Yeah. So. Taiwan, New Zealand, these island nations with a lot of social cohesion. I think that's a part of it and compliance and, you know, not uh, fantastically horrific poverty. These are all some of the elements that sometimes got people or countries or nation states through COVID. But I do want to talk, as your documentary does about Kinman. Is it the case that, and so listeners of this show, and do watch the doc, it's short, it's uh, on the Times' website, it is so close to China. You look across a very narrow strip of water, and there you see a Chinese city of about 6 million people looming. Is it the case that occasionally in Taiwan proper, you can go days without thinking of the looming presence of China, but in Kinmen, that's just impossible? I think that's a pretty accurate description. I mean, I think if you go to Taipei, you, it, you're just in another, you know, booming Asian metropolis, right? Uh, you don't, you don't feel like anything is wrong. People are running around going, to, you know, chasing like snacks and night markets and try to go, go to the hot springs, you know, in the wintertime. Um, there's just, there's not any visual reminders. People are not talking about it, right? Even now. If you go, you just would not feel it. But but in in the Kimmen Islands, I mean, everywhere you turn, you know, besides the the Xiamen City that you described, which is one of the, the large cities in the south in the southeastern part of, of China, um, that is kind of there, kind of taunting <laughs> the Kimmeners. Um, but also the 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 military artifacts on the island, the the bunkers, you know, all these old military structures with bullet holes in it, painted in camouflage. Um, you know, it's it's everywhere. It, it's it's part of life. I'm not sure though how much the folks are thinking about the future or the the possibility of something repeated itself, repeating itself. But really, the past is always in the present for the folks in Kimmen. You know, the war is always in yeah. their minds. Military is always in their minds. So you talk about these war relics and the movie starts with, and near the end, the shot is of this semi-submerged tank on the beach. And of course, the turrets, the guns are pointed towards China, but you don't explain, and it's fine, it acts as a great visual metaphor, which is, I guess, why the uh, 
the government of the island kept it there or maybe just couldn't be dislodged. But what is the story behind that tank? So it actually is an American tank um, that was not from the war itself, but from the training, uh, many years of training that U.S. military uh, had hosted for the Taiwanese uh, military. I think it was for target practice or it's for, for some kind of, you know, rehearsal or, or, or something that, that they just decided to leave it on the beach. And it's half submerged into the sand. It actually gets flooded during high tide. Um, and then when during the low tide, you can go right up to it and touch it. It's rusted. It's got barnacles on it. Um, to me, you know, that, that tank is, is like, it, it's for, it's a character in, in my film, right? It's this ghost that, that is most beautiful you know, um, on this amazing Christine beach that represents the past, but it's also haunting you and telling you what might happen in the near future. Um, I mean, you know, so, so there is a sequence in my film where you see these, you know, pretty, pretty young women taking Instagram photos in front of it, followed immediately by the, the drill, the, the, the bomb drills that the Taiwanese military is shooting, you know, shells into the water between Taiwan and China. And they do this fairly frequently, you know, I mean, that's the reality, the duality of the situation, you know, of folks living in Kinmen and, and to a more, psychological extent, I guess, if you will, that's the way that all Taiwanese people live, regardless of what part of Taiwan they live in. Yeah. So that is a really great visual metaphor, but I, and I understand why you as a filmmaker were drawn to it. I, as an audio guy, was somewhat obsessed with the large speaker <laughs> system, which was actually a concrete husk that looked like a speaker system containing smaller speakers, where the intention is to play propaganda or Voice of America type programming that would go across the water and hit the Chinese and make them, I don't know, regret their communist choices. So a couple of questions about that. Is it, is it the case that the Chinese, the mainland Chinese, can actually hear the music being pumped from those speakers? They, they can't now. I mean, the, the volume has been turned down significantly because- You can listen to more on Pesca Plus, where we talk about Leo's life, the meaning behind the name of the island Kinmen, which is somewhat interesting. Nixon versus Kennedy policies on the islands. Oh yeah, we go back in time, we take you there. We are really over-delivering on Pesca Plus this week. Three extra episodes. You get at least one a week. You get shows without ads. You can go to subscribe.mikepesca.com for more. And now the spiel. Brian Lehrer, New York Public Radio host earlier this week, reminded the audience that we were experiencing an anniversary of sorts. It was five years ago this month, February 7th, 2019, when New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in office barely a month, introduced the Green New Deal resolution, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. You might be forgiven for forgetting the five-year anniversary of the introduction of a non-binding resolution that did not pass, in fact, wasn't even brought up for a vote, except the Republicans actually did try to trap the Democrats into claiming support. That went nowhere either. It was the Green New Deal, eh, something like the legislative equivalent of a 1972 Ford Pinto, in that the best thing to hope for wasn't that it actually went anywhere, but that it didn't explode with you inside of it. Actually, the Ford Pinto 
Toronto had much worse emission standards than the Green New Deal, which Lehrer's guest, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, positioned as a great success, a success that anticipated and ushered in every other piece of green legislation the Biden White House actually did get Congress to pass. Here's Ocasio-Cortez describing her resolution. What Green New Deal policy does is that it is it creates jobs, it centers um, environmental justice communities, and it, sure, it ensures that we meet our climate targets so that we can save the planet. The representative's thesis is that even though the actual literal Green New Deal did not pass as such, the spirit of the Green New Deal informs so many other parts of the climate agenda that in effect the legislation did pass. She maintains that we wouldn't have had the historic climate portions of the Inflation Reduction Act without the Green New Deal. We wouldn't have had the climate aspects of the infrastructure bill without the Green New Deal. A caller had to remind her that she voted against the infrastructure bill, by the way. She explained that was part of her legislative strategy. Now, I disagree with her premise about the Green New Deal. And That's fine. Partisans do this all the time. They frame defeats as victories. They frame elements of an agenda that is enacted as impossible without the groundwork of past attempts to pass what was even failed legislation. I believe if the Green New Deal were never introduced, the actual climate legislation that did pass would still have passed in the exact form that it did pass. It would still be quite popular, as demonstrated by the fact that the actual climate legislation was championed by former Green New Deal skeptics like Nancy Pelosi, Angus King, and Joe Biden. AOC credits her resolution that didn't make it out of committee. It is hard to overstate how much it has realigned the landscape. And previously, where there were folks on the opposite ends of certain climate questions, they've now been aligned to the same side of things as well. And it has done so much to accelerate our our, our progress in meeting our climate targets. I'd say floods, wildfires, the ever-rising temperatures, and, very importantly, a Democrat in the White House and a Senate not controlled by Republicans, that's what got climate legislation passed, not a non-binding resolution calling for a decarbonization of the planet by the year 2050. Now, I may be wrong. It is impossible to prove. I'm not opposed to those who are more to the left or progressive than I am, those visionaries, to posit their leftist visions and see if it gets support. That's fine. Hers didn't. Let's not pretend that it was more important than it was, but I understand why she would want to. She wouldn't think that that she is pretending. I know that after the fact, there's always the human tendency and political tendency to claim, you know, the vision was correct. The vision issued a guide path, but for the vision, we wouldn't be where we are today. But there were some aspects of AOC's framing that frankly fly in the face of reality. So Lair brought up the difficulty of threading the needle between constituencies, with the environmental left wanting to eliminate fossil fuels, but the AFL-CIO wary because there are so many good jobs out there in the fields. He asked, how much on the same page do you think various progressive groups are today around this concept and that tension? Here's her answer. You're absolutely correct. Um, There were a tremendous amount of those fault lines, both even within a pro-climate coalition, but generally as well, Um, alongside all of these questions. But now, whereas before there was a lot of debates around carbon taxes and and 
the number of jobs in the fossil fuel industry, we have now worked to even the playing field. But the Biden administration has just announced that they are pulling back on emission requirements in order to boost the economy. I'll read from the New York Times front page, top story account of that. In a concession to automakers and labor unions, the Biden administration intends to relax elements of one of its most ambitious strategies to combat climate change, limits on tailpipe emissions that are designed to get Americans to switch from gas-powered cars to electric vehicles. The change comes as President Biden faces intense crosswinds as he runs for re-election while trying to confront climate change. And he still aims to cut them, but he's pushing it off further in the future than he originally planned. Because why? Well, because of the same exact tension that is definitely there and that will always be there between environmentalists and labor unions, even if there was a Green New Deal. There's another common tactic of, let us call them, aspiring change agents. Pretend like there are no trade-offs. Regard any acknowledgement of what I'll call reality as nonsense. Say that there are no winners and losers. Anyone who says that, they're lying, they're pessimistic, they're beholden to special interests. No, we can all win. It's a win-win-win-win. I understand it's not the lawmaker's job to lay out the downsides of her preferred policy, but they do have downsides? Just ask the AFL, CIO, and Joe Biden. I thought then, and I think now, that the Green New Deal was an unrealistic plan. Not just unrealistic in terms of passing, unrealistic in terms of its actual implementation, and unrealistic in terms of acknowledging that the Democratic coalition does need plenty of leaders and voters who prioritize middle-class economic issues over jobs. It doesn't have to be either or. Yes, in reality, it often does. The standard line is something like, you know, shifting to green energy or embracing a green future. It will benefit all of us once the wind farms and solar dot the landscape. We'll all be better off for it, not just environmentally, but economically. Uh Uh-huh. In the meantime, lots of people who you need in your coalition will be hurt. And by the way, the meantime is not the two or three years that you imply. It's the two or three decades. Anyway, I know that Nancy Pelosi was seen as a horrible, dismissive, backwards-looking individual, which called the Green New Deal the green dream or whatever. But, you know, it did have many elements of a dream. It was aspirational. It was not a reality. And pointing this out causes people to become upset because, just like waking someone from a deep slumber, we get pretty bothered when someone shakes us out of our reveries. And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. They are Corey War, the producer, Joel Patterson, the senior producer. Michelle Pasca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Do Peru, G Peru, do Peru. Thanks for listening. <laughs>